and how we interact with one another. That's sociology. But he uses a word that maybe we've heard but might not really understand, pathology or pathology, if you will. A pathology is a, um, it's a variance. It's a deviation from what's correct. You know, if you have good health and it starts going bad, they want to develop the pathology on you. What's going wrong? Where's the deviation from what should be happening? And so when he uses this word pathology in this session, uh, we, we want to understand that the things he's talking about, we're looking for a sound biblical worldview. What's the right way that God made things? But often what happens is we're looking at the ideal of God's order. We often drop down to look at the pathology, what's actually happening. You know, for example, he talks about the family. We go, boy, the family is in such disarray. It's under such attack. And we have so many different pathologies of family these days. We have to go back and say, what's God's divine order? So just those couple of words for you. And here's Dell. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. I am glad that you're all back for the next tour. This is going to be incredible. Have you talked to a chicken lately? Joshua, when was the last time you talked to a chicken? At lunch. At lunch. <laughs> uh, do you recall we were looking at Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. What do the heavens declare? The glory glory of God. Job says, but ask the animals and they will teach you. Or the birds of the air and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. What about talking to a chicken egg? Have you talked to a chicken egg? David, have you talked to a chicken egg? I haven't. You haven't. Boy, are you missing out something. If what we just read from the scripture, if the heavens do declare the glory of God, and if the scripture says... Ask the animals, and they will teach you. The birds of the air, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Then we probably ought to listen to them. If you examine what God has given to us, you find some of the most incredible things. We've been looking at them on several of our tours. Let's look at the chicken egg for just a minute. Examine it. Learn from it. There are three main parts to the chicken egg. The shell, the yolk, and the egg white. Now, the shell has about 10,000 pores in it. Do you know why those pores are there? Air in? To let the air in. That's exactly right, David. Because the chick inside the egg needs that air. There are four vessels that are attached to the chick. Two go to the yolk. That's its food source. Two attached to the outer membrane. For those of you who have ever peeled a hard-boiled egg, you know that there is a membrane around it. That membrane is not there to make the the, uh, shell come off easier. That membrane is what those two vessels attach to. So when the chick is metabolizing the yolk... It gives off carbon dioxide through those vessels. That goes out between the membrane and the shell. It seeps out through those pores. The oxygen comes in through those pores, down through the vessels, so that the chick can breathe. So the chick is metabolizing the yolk, giving off carbon dioxide, water vapor, breathing air in. The problem is, on the 19th day, the chick is running out of air. It can't get enough air through that vessel. It has a special egg tooth on its beak. The only reason for this egg tooth is to allow the chick to peck a hole in the membrane 
at one end of the egg because at one end of the egg, there is an air pocket. Have you noticed on a hard-boiled egg, there's a flat end? That's not so you can set your egg up on the table. (laughs) There is an air pocket there that gives the chick just enough air, six hours of air, for it to peck a hole into the shell and voila, the chick emerges. Now, isn't that incredible? Ashley, isn't that amazing? My, what you can learn from a chicken egg. Now, of course, we might ask ourselves, how long did it take for the hen to figure that out? I mean, it may have laid an egg that didn't quite have 10,000 pores in it. And the chick dies because of a lack of oxygen with no ability to give off the carbon dioxide and whatever. If it's too many pores, the shell becomes too brittle. Or maybe it's three vessels instead of four. Or maybe the air pocket's not quite big enough. What an amazing thing. But talk to the animals, and they will teach you and tell you. Now, the chicken egg poses a problem. And that problem is order. Because... Random, purposeless, mindless forces should produce a random, purposeless, mindless cosmos. But that's not what we have. God is a God of order. Job 25.2, dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. And disorder is not a part of God's nature. 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder. If you read James, it's an interesting passage. It says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Well, wouldn't it have been sufficient for him to say, there you find every evil practice? Isn't that sufficient? But no, he added and singled out, Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. God is a God of order. He's not a God of disorder. I try to remind my son that when I look into his room. God is not a God of disorder. What I'd like for you to do is take a look at this montage, and I want you to see if you can pick out the different systems that God has created. What an incredible thing that God has given to us. All of these systems, incredible in their order and beauty. They are displayed in great glory through the physical creation. But even more so, I'm convinced, in the order that he has created in the social realm. And that order is just as phenomenal and just as beautiful. Are you ready for the tour? We are going to begin the second half of our time together taking a look at this incredible thing that we're going to call God's social order. It is the top P 
piece of our framework. And it is here that we're going to begin to look at all of these social institutions that God has given to us. And my hope and my prayer is that you're going to find that all of these institutions that God has given to us are going to represent the most beautiful, awesome, glorious systems of all of God's creation. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, are these also the result of just chance? Is this social order that God has given to us, is that just something that is evolved? Or are these systems really the design of God, the creation of God, given to us, glorifying him? And the other thing we're going to find is that this is where the real battleground lies. This is where the struggle occurs. This is where the battle rages, right here. And it's not surprising to us, and we should not be surprised, that this order is also difficult for people to see. Just as Crick said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. We're going to find that the world has a tendency to do the same thing with his social systems. And to have the same kind of visceral reaction. Remember Darwin's statement? I remember well when the thought of the eye made me cold all over. The sight of a peacock's feather made him sick. We are going to find that the design of God also is going to result in man who is not willing to gaze upon his face is going to have the same kind of visceral reaction against it. That is why these institutions today, in our time, are under huge attack, deep attack. So, let me ask you another question. When God was in the creative work of creating the universe, he made a recurring comment. Do you recall what that might be? It is good. It, it is good. Yes. How many times did he say, it is good, Shiny? At least seven times. At least. That's right. Very good. Because he did it at the end of each day, did he not? It is good. It is good. So... Does that mean if God says his work is good, does that mean that everything God created was good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Grant, would you turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18? In the middle of the creation... God then begins to speak. Would you start? Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Stop. Now, <laughs> we have a little problem here. We just got through saying that everything that God creates is good. Read it again. Maybe you made a mistake. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Stop. Now, what are we to do here? What are we to suppose at this point? God has stopped in the midst of this creation when he has continued to say, what, Shiny? It is, it is good. good. It is good, it is good, and now all of a sudden we get, it is not good. Does that mean God has created something that is not good? Go ahead and read the statement. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Okay, no. stop. Now, it is not good for man to be alone. Is God making at this point, and hang with me here, is he making a qualitative statement 
or an ethical statement? Do you understand my question? Qualitative means something is uh, made well, done well, crafted well. Ethical is implying there's an ethical problem with this. Which is it? Is he making a qualitative statement or an ethical statement? Is he making a pragmatic statement or a moral statement? Qualitative. Say again, was it? Qualitative. A qualitative statement. Why would you say that? Because he didn't make something bad wrong. He made something that was in need of a little improvement, perhaps. Qualitative. So you're saying at this point he made something, he looks at it, he says, you know, it's not quite right. I didn't do that quite well enough. No, 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 that's not right. No, no. <laughs> All right. Let's just hang there for a minute. What do we need to do? How do we respond and answer this little dilemma for a few minutes? Obviously, we must turn and focus on the nature of God. Now, what do you suppose we should do before we begin to launch into this area of social order, sociology? What aspect of God's nature do you suppose we should focus on at this point? And by the way, that's a great question you need to ask yourself before you launch off into any area of study. What is it about the nature of God that we must refresh ourselves with before we begin to launch in this area? What do you suppose it might be? Trinity. The Trinity. Pardon me? The Trinity. The Trinity. Why would you say the Trinity? Um, because God is, is one person, but he's also three people or three spirits. Okay. What does that imply, though, in terms of sociology? God is a community. Yeah. Okay. There's something about a relationship here. There's something about a social being that is already found and bound up in the very heart of God. Correct? So we must turn, first of all, and gaze upon the nature of God. When the Christian faces the doctrine of the Trinity, it is one of the most uh, puzzling problems uh, for the mind to grasp. Indeed, it is a mystery. It's not a contradiction, but it is a mystery how we can have a being who is one in essence and three in person. Notice he's not one in essence and three in essence. That would be contradictory, but rather our God has unity and diversity within his own being. Now, the beauty of that is that one of the oldest questions that uh, philosophical investigation is resolved in God himself. And that is the question of the one and the many. The oldest philosophers looked around the world in which they lived and they saw trees and flowers and animals and rain and sunshine, all this diversity. And they said, we have all these many things. How, how do we make sense of them? Is there anything that unifies this diversity. That's why we get the word universe and university, trying to find some transcendent unity that will bring coherence and meaning to all of the wide-ranging diversities that we encounter. That's found in God himself, who in his very being is unity and diversity. What R.C. is saying is that this area that we are about to look at one of the most glorious tours you'll ever take in your life, is going to be fundamentally bound up in the very nature of God, and that brings us to this issue of the triune nature of God. Now, who can describe this? How in the world do we begin to get our hands around this aspect of God's nature? Let's go back briefly for just a minute to that old document, almost 400 years old, one of the old confessions, where they attempted to try and capture the essence of what this triune nature of God means, and we will look at it and see if it might help us a little bit. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. 
Now, what I would like to do, and I'm going to do this with deep fear and trembling, because any time you begin to try to diagram the infinite God of the universe with a finite piece of chalk on a finite plane, you should begin with fear and trembling. But this is all we have. And so, I would like for us to begin to think, what does this triune nature of God look like? What is in here? Father. The Father. The Son. The Son. And the Holy Spirit. Now, these three are in perfect harmony and relationship with each other. What do we know about this relationship? Well, the Son, what is the Son's relationship to the Father? He's eternally begotten of the Father. Eternally begotten proceeds from number of words that are used in theology that talk about the Father sends the Son. Let me help you here a minute, because what I think is important for us to do is to begin to look at the nature of God and ask ourselves, when he created social order, do we see that nature imprinted upon his social institutions? Let's look at one for just a minute. Let's look at the family. What are the members of the family? The husband. The husband. husband. The husband. The wife. The wife. Children. Children. And they are placed in a social unit in relationship to each other. Now, what does the scripture say? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one, one flesh. When Jesus was praying to the Father, he said that he and the Father were what? One. One. Interesting. The wife submits to her husband. What do we see in this relationship? The son submits. The son submits to the Father. Now, let me stop. My guess is, that at this point, we could probably stop and recognize that when I say the word submission, that is what, Lena? A negative word, is it not? It is. Do you suppose that this relationship where the son over and over again submits himself to the father... Do you suppose that the word submission is a negative word in the triune nature of God? Absolutely not. I would submit to you that the word submit is a glorious word. What has the world done with that word? Distorted it. Made it ugly. So, this is interesting. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Where do the children come from? I know you're old enough to answer this question. <laughs> Where do children come from? From the husband and the wife. What an incredible picture of the triune nature of God. Stamped upon his first social institution. And it's not going to be a surprise to us that the world, the flesh, and the devil that hates the nature of God hates this structure as well. 
And you and I know that this structure is under huge attack today. So, we gaze upon the face of God in order for us to begin to understand social order. We must begin here. How do we understand what it really means to submit or to be an authority if we don't go to the source of that? And when we don't go to the source of that, we use authority in an ugly way. And we view submission in an ugly way. So here we have the glory with fear and trembling (laughs) to even think that we could try to diagram it, but it's all we have to look at. And the relationship that we see within the triune nature of God, perfect unity, perfect relationships, perfect equality, roles and authority and submission. What an incredible social institution. God did not sit in heaven and dream up something called social order. It had already been in existence for all eternity. Now, I have to confess to you that I happen to see the world in threes. That is a fault. I recognize that. It's just that everywhere I look, I see triune things. We have the three primary colors. If you look at the atom, you have the proton, the neutron, and the electron. Matter exists in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. And, of course, we have the three stooges. (laughs) It just seems like there are threes everywhere. I also think that God has created three realms the physical realm with its physical laws, the spiritual realm with its spiritual laws, and the social realm with its social laws. And it's this social realm that we are going to begin to examine and to ask ourselves, how has God designed these spheres? What does that order look like? Because if we go against God's design... We will be going against his nature. And it is not good to go against the nature of God. I have begun to be convinced that the more I look and the more I study and the more I see that, quite frankly, everything is about relationships whether or not we're talking about the relationships of the physical realm in terms of the relationships of the inner workings of each system or the relationships between those systems to other systems, even the solar system. We're beginning to find now that there are relationships between the planets. You know that Jupiter, this huge behemoth of a planet that's out there orbiting around the sun, Many people are now believing that we would have been destroyed and it had not been for that huge planet out there. Huge gravitational pull. Pulling in all the junk that might destroy Earth. It comes in and hits Jupiter. It's all about relationships. And if you recall, what happened at the fall? All the relationships were severed. God and man, man to man, immediately Adam and Eve pointing a finger, the next thing, Cain killing Abel, man damaged internally, and man to creation. The real results of the fall had everything to do with relationships. Relationships are just incredibly important. Whether we're talking about a husband and a wife, there she is, my sweet wife, Melissa. Or a husband, wife, and their family. Or a man and his grandson. That's my grandson, 
Judah. Or a mother and her boys, that's my daughter, Tina, Judah and Micaiah. Or a boy and his dog. It just seems it's all about relationships. How incredible they are. Should we be surprised when we realize and recognize that the very nature of God exhibits this perfect social order and relationships? Why was it not good for man to be alone? Read it again, Grant. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. Stop. I'm sorry. I'll let you continue in a minute. It is not good for man to be alone. Let me ask you this question again. Was that a qualitative statement or an ethical statement? Ethical. ethical. Why do you say ethical? It's contrary to the nature of God. Contrary to the nature of God. Now we might ask ourselves, does that mean that God created something unethical? No. This is what I call the divine pause. See, he could have stopped at, he could have made a dog with three legs and said, it's not good for a dog to have three legs. That might have been qualitative. But here it is, this divine pause. God stops in the middle of his creation. It's the only time he stops. Isn't this incredible? It is good. 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 It is not good for man to be alone. Why did he pause at that moment? In the midst of his creative act, I think he paused to make a divine statement about his nature. There had never been aloneness before. Never. There had never been aloneness before in all eternity. And now there was aloneness. It is not good for man to be alone. This is the divine mark. Think about this. One is the loneliest number you could ever. I won't sing it, Joshua. One defines aloneness. Two defines relationship and intimacy. Three defines community and fellowship. And four doesn't add anything. Now, that's not an argument for the Trinity. I just think it's pretty neat that within the triune nature of God, we have everything. Everything. Intimacy. Union. Communion. Fellowship. Love, community, wow. We hear a lot uh, in our culture uh, of the doctrine or the concept of natural law, and that usually refers to laws that can be gleaned from a study of nature. But there's another way in which that term natural law is used that's critical for our understanding of a life and worldview, and that is the natural law of God. That when God gives his law, when God prescribes what the families should look like, what church should look like, what economics should look like, what all of the structures of human life should look like, it is based not on some abstract law outside of God, but it's based upon his own nature. Is that for us to go against uh, these laws is to ask God to deny himself, to deny his own nature. Social order is bound up in the nature of God because he created social institutions with the divine imprint of who he is. And so we're going to take a look at those. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is that imprint? How has he designed this? Because if we can understand how he's designed it, if we can understand the social laws that he has given to us, 
then we might find ourselves more in harmony with his nature and it just might work better. And that is what we will do. We're going to begin by looking at what I'll call the intimate three. We'll explain that more on the next tour. But we want to take a look at this intimate three and look at the divine imprint that has been stamped upon it. We started by looking at the relationship between the Trinity and the family. And what did we see there? We saw the same kind of authority system, the idea of submission, the idea of oneness, and that there should be unity within that institution that God has created. What I'd like to do now is turn our attention to look at the details of two of those spheres. We'll look at the details now of the church and the family. And when we do, although we're only going to look at these briefly, my prayer is that you are going to behold the glory of God in the same way when we look into deep space or we gaze upon DNA and RNA, that we look at them with awe. We have lost the awe of what God has created. And we have begun to exchange it for a lie. And the pathologies that result from it are ugly and awesome. So we're going to look at these and turn our attention now to the intimate three and begin by looking at these two together. You will find when you begin to study this, just how consistent these are. Not as the result of an evolutionary view of homology that says, well, because the structures are like, they must have evolved somehow together. No, we're going to find out the structures are close because they all reflect the triune nature of God. Let's look at Ephesians 5 for a minute. What does it say? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is what? The head of the church. All right, let's look at the church for a minute. What do we have in here? Christ. Christ. Church. church. The head of the church, his body. How about if I just put the body here for a minute? Okay. What's the relationship? Submission. 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 It's the head. Christ is the head of the body in the same way that the husband is the head of the wife. That seems consistent. His body of which he is the Savior. Wives, submit to your husband as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits, this is interesting, what does the church do? The church submits to Christ... So also, wives should submit to their husbands. Now, remember, of course, every time I say the word submit, you and I have been taken captive by the world that tells us that that word is negative. And you're going to have to work through that. But again, remind yourself, the idea of submission is not negative. In fact, it is a glorious thing. In the same way that authority is a glorious thing. Has man... Twisted that into ugliness? Absolutely. But we're trying to look at the design, not the pathologies. Let's go on. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? And gave himself up for her. Willie? You understand that your relationship to your wife should be that in the same way that Christ is looking at the body, giving himself up for her. You, too, should be giving yourself up for her. 
That is your responsibility. Christ gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle and any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives. He's making the relationship between these two social institutions that God has created. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. The same as Christ, who loves his body. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Jesus said he and the father are one. What do we now know about this? One. Now, however, let each one of you love his wife, Jason, Willie, David, all of you married guys, each of you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, see that you respect your husband. Your husband needs respect like you need love. Shiny, do you need your husband to love you? You know how much you need him to love you. He needs you to respect him. Even though sometimes Rob may not be (laughs) worthy of your respect. And just as possibly, and I know it's not the case with you, you may not be worthy of love. But it's not about worthiness here. It is about the design of God. You love. You you love your wife. You respecting your husband. It is very easy, by the way, let me uh, mention this to the wives. It's very easy, especially for mothers, to begin to disrespect their husbands um, in this way. That it's often easy for a wife to begin to treat her husband like she treats her children. That's disrespectful to a man. You may recognize it sometimes when all of a sudden he clams up. When he clams up, that may be an indication you might have disrespected him. In the same way, when you clam up, or depending on how you react, when you feel unloved, it's the same thing. God has given us this design, and he's given us the social law for how all of this is supposed to work. Oh, how we have distorted it. Let's look briefly at the church for just a minute. What what do we see here? This is an interesting verse. Paul, speaking to Titus, says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So he lists the qualifications for this position. But it's interesting that he is directing that they be appointed. Now, in this next passage, interesting. Paul has called together the elders from Ephesus. And he is, in this discourse, laying out for them what they need to do. In this verse, he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, Let's ask ourselves, what does this structure look like then, possibly? What does the body consist of? Elders Elders and the flock. 
We can use leaders. The scripture often talks about leaders. We could use shepherds. We'll just use, or we could use elders. There are other appointed positions. Less at this point, we'll put leaders. What else is in this sphere? The flock. Which is an interesting relationship. This is now directed to the flock. Obey your leaders and what? And submit to them and their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be no advantage to you. In 1 Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. I just think this is really neat. What does the flock do? It honors. What are children told to do? Honor their father and mother. I just think this is unbelievable. The stamp of God upon his social order. What an incredible picture. Well, let's look at the family sphere for a second. Let's look at the details. What do we see? What is the family? Do you know this social order, even though it is under great attack today, still evokes a lot of emotion. Let's look at how the world answers the question, what is the family? What does family mean to me? Family is very important. Family to me is important. It's important. It shouldn't be by all rights. (laughs) Family as we see today, I think, means many different things. Some people have a circle of friends that they would call family. Some people have their immediate bloodline that they would call family. I grew up a hater. I grew up locked up most of my life. (laughs) Family is a bond that you have with certain people. Something that really brings up strong feelings in people. My mother wasn't a mother. She was a monster. Severe alcoholic. My dad wasn't ever there. While there can be many different types of family, the best type of family is one that is close-knit family are the closest people to you it's just a bond that just keeps you together and you help each other out throughout the years kind of like a clan if you will i think closer than your best friend closer than anyone that you know very close affiliations of love and friendship it's nice to know that they're there and that they'll come and help me in the time of need love is what makes a family it's not so much what the structure of the family is or what the roles are that are played by whom What's of ultimate importance is what is the quality of the relationships and the interaction. I am excited about family right now. Family before was very intimate and very quiet, and I married an Italian Greek woman whose family is huge. So family now is is fun. I, I automatically have another brother, another sister. Um, now I have dad, you know, two moms. My wife is pregnant, and it's an exciting time. In my own family, my husband and I have two daughters. Our older daughter is a lesbian. Our younger daughter is heterosexual. And so we are a family that some people would challenge, wouldn't think we're okay. Family doesn't necessarily have to be your biological family. It could be just a great relationship with just people that you've known for a long time. It's in our nature to want to have someone to love and to be loved by. We're not the closest of families. We tolerate each other. We have gone in America from multi-generational families to single nuclear families that are often disrupted by divorce. I think our families have been destroyed. I got a son I don't never get to see. I love him to death and a call, a right. I think we need to focus back on the family and I think that's an important event. Everybody is my family because we are all human beings. We are all the same family. There's nothing different. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of emotion in there. There's a lot of pain in there. And there's a lot of confusion in there. Is that what the family is? Can we just willy-nilly redefine the family just to be 
friends or... No, we can't. This is not ours to manipulate. Now, the world may say, let us throw off his chains, but it's not there for us to manipulate. And in fact, when we follow God's design, again, even in a fallen world, there is joy and peace, contentment. Now, I understand that when we take a look at the structure of the family, that this structure has suffered deeply, and the pathologies are great. But God has given us the structure, and he's also given us the social laws for this structure. Let's look at a couple of them. In Malachi 2, God says, I hate divorce says the Lord God of Israel. For a long time, I used to think that that was a pragmatic statement. And to some extent, it carries a great deal of pragmatism in it because of the, of the pain that comes from divorce. I suffer from that as well. A child of a, of a divorced set of parents, even in my old age. I understand that. But I am convinced that this is not primarily a pragmatic statement. I think that God is speaking here in terms hating divorce because it destroys the very image of God that he stamped upon the institution of the family. 1 Peter 3, Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Do you think this is serious with God? That he is now speaking to us as husbands and saying, I'm telling you, that you must treat your wife with respect and as a joint heir with you, because if you do not, I may not listen to you. And I'll tell you, folks, there is nothing that causes me to shudder more. In fact, I have goosebumps right now to think that God would not hear my prayers. That's how serious this is. You think maybe your prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling? Maybe you ought to check your relationship with your wife. You want to see how consistent the scripture is. Let's go back to Malachi. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Huh, I wonder what's going on. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. And here we have one of the purposes for the family. But do you understand how serious this is with God? Rob, do you understand this? Jason? Alex? This business about how you treat your wife is not just some sociological, pragmatic issue. It is a serious issue with God. And it is so serious that he has laid down one of the most serious consequences to us. So guard yourself in your spirit, he says, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garments, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them? Or where is the God of justice? I tell you, when we look inside the family today, my guess is that there are men who stand there in opposition to the reality that God is there. 
Or we say, where is the God of justice? I can do what I want. You cannot. Consequences are deep. And I'm not going to let the wives get off too easily here. (laughs) Because I want to read you something from the same passage in 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Do you know what the world would say about that? That it is not of great worth. Oh, what has the world done? The pathologies of the family are huge. If you pull back the cover, if you open the doors, if you raise the roof a little, if you have the ability to peek and to hear, if you could hear but but for a brief instant, what God must hear in this realm of the pathology of this family would crush us. Do you not think that the heart of God weeps when a child is huddled in a corner crying for his parents to stop fighting? Do you not think he hears the slap of a hand across the face of a child? Who can excuse abuse within this unit that God has created for intimacy and fellowship and love and union and oneness? And you open up the door and there is yelling and screaming and fighting. And physical abuse? Oh, I don't mean for this to be such a downer. Because when you look on the other side, oh, what a glorious thing God has given to us. There isn't anything like the intimacy that occurs between a man and a woman that have been brought together by God in this covenant relationship. And the union and the oneness. And children who honor their parents. And parents who are faithfully loving and training their children. You heard Flash? You heard others? Oh, how we long for that intimacy and fellowship that God has given to us. Father, would you begin with me? Would you begin with these students? That we might look afresh at the relationship you've provided with us in our families. That we would begin to live in the way that you have designed for us to live. Father, would you bless that effort? And, oh, Father, would you allow us to begin to turn and be of aid and comfort and a light to the families that live around us, that we would not ignore the cries for help. Lord, that we might be your ambassadors, your stewards, first in our own homes. And into the families around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close this out by saying a few things, if you would allow me.
One is, where things are right, we should always give honor. And, uh, for example, just in the last week or so, I can tell you that the, Joe and Linda Stangle celebrated 38 years of being married. And, uh, yeah, that's to be honored. And uh, the Mustards just came past 13 years. And, and uh, there are many others in the room that we could say thank you for being an excellent example to us. Uh, for getting married, staying married, and hanging on to the social order. Look at John Day there, and Floyd Darlene, some of these around us that, uh, you know, they're holding on to what's right. And uh, should always honor what's right. I also want to say that if you find yourself after hearing this and seeing this today in one of the broken pathologies of family or marriage or home or even in relationship to the church, then this is where we need to fall back into the grace of God and say, God, I am so grateful that I can run to the cross and kneel there at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive the others in the events. Um, bring our hearts back home to you. Give us your grace and your ability to overcome the failures and the, and the sin that we may have participated in and bringing that broken structure into our own home or into our churches. But if it's not grace, then none of us are going to make it. Amen? We thank God for His grace. It was His idea to have grace, not ours. We didn't plead for it, and then He gave it to us. He decided we needed it way before we knew about it, and He extended it to us through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. For those of you who may be single, young people in the room, uh, you're thinking about finding that perfect uh, knight in the shining armor or uh, your, your little Guinevere, whatever. Having this kind of information that transforms your heart and shows you the proper foundation that the Scripture lays gives you a distinct advantage if you'll grasp it. If you'll not accept what the world is funneling at you uh, nonstop, 24-7, 365, and telling you how marriage and family and things should be defined by their Design. I say when I say there because we're in the world but we're not of the world. And having come out of the world, we begin to recognize the lies that we lived under before. And those lies are coming constantly. And we've just been through a big issue here in our state with Prop 8 and fighting lies. And, and uh, it's going to continue. Um, and I spoke to a young man from the high school this last couple of weeks. And he said the thing right now in the, for high schoolers is to be gay is cool. And, and even if you're not, you know, even if you're a straight, it's still cool to act a certain way. And that's so we hold hands with same sex in the halls and kiss each other in the halls and, and uh, act gay because that's acceptable now. It's like a fashion statement. I thought, boy, take a young mind that's still being fashioned and give it a fashion statement like that to follow. And you've got a greatly confused adult coming that is unable to contribute in a healthy way to culture, society, and to the body of Christ. Now, let me speak to us because I know the Lord spoke to us here at Christian Center and said, I'm going to send you the wounded, the bleeding, the matted, the weary, the helpless. Hey, we're them. <laughs> we're here. And uh, we acknowledge that. And we understand that we've been beat up by the world. We've been beat up by the devil. We've been beat up by the flesh. But we've come to the cross and we know Jesus now. And if you don't know Jesus, may I invite you to know him today. Put your trust in Christ. Um, come tell us that you need Jesus. And we'll help you get a hold of him uh, squarely so that you'll never have to drift again through the rest of your life. This is not just good information. This is coupled with the Holy Spirit's revelation, transforms our lives and can transform our families and can transform our churches to be more like Him. What revelation? Would you say this was worth being here this morning even without the popcorn? Amen. Heavenly Father, we are extremely grateful to you. And Lord, I immediately, if I could, I'd want to shake all the hands and hug all the necks of those that took the time and the effort and the finances and the, to put this truth project together. 
Lord, we pray your blessing on Focus on the Family and their entire staff and the Truth Project staff. We pray that things will work well for them, that their websites will hold up and that their goals will be met and that you will cheer them on, Father, uh, through the times that are difficult, that you'll continue to bless them with the hope of what they are doing. Lord, we thank you for the transformation that comes to our lives by your presence. Thank you for showing us today the social structures of who you are and how you've taken who you are and now imprinted it upon our families and our churches and our culture. Lord, cause us to live truly as you said we should as salt and light. Help us to grasp the very fact that our homes, our churches, our individual lives are to be a shining example that city set upon a hill that can't be hidden, a demonstration of what you can do with lives that are submitted to you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for forgiveness today in Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Love one another. And listen, before anybody gets up, I shouldn't miss this link, okay? Um, take it this far and then miss this moment. But what, can I have the lighthouse keepers stand right now? If you're leading a cell group uh, on the back of your bulletin, ladies and gentlemen, with us today, there's a list of these people and their homes. This is just a partial group of what you'll find on that list. These would be available to talk with you and to uh, help you find a cell group to be in, a, a lighthouse group this week. Because if, if you enjoyed this, I mean, there's a dozen of these. Uh, with all kinds of of, uh, great information and insight that you can garner in the Truth Project. And we're doing this right now in our lighthouses. So if you're not in one, connect with one of these guys here and uh, say, hey, how do I get in? Let's help them get plugged in. Amen? Okay, now the rest of you can stand. Okay.